Father, thank you for this day, this Lord's Day. Thank you for the sunshine and for the way that it warms the earth and brings life um, to our bodies and to the world around us. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us um, your spirit this morning, especially as we worship um, in a little bit, but also now um, as we um, gather together to consider uh, matters of your word and of your ways with your people. We pray for your presence with us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, we are continuing our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I want to remind you that next Sunday at this time, um, we'll be doing a, a report. I'll be doing a report on the life of our church over the last year and looking forward to 2024 and thinking about budgetary matters and finances and all those things. So um, hopefully all of you will be back and a lot more will be here as well. Um, and so we can talk about those things productively together. Um, as we get started today, we're looking at um, Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 10, which is entitled, Of Effectual Calling. Um, one thing just to point out um, as we begin um, talking about this chapter, um, and that is that the, the confession is about to move into a, um, a sequence of chapters. Let's see if I can pull out a copy here so I name all the chapter titles correctly. So chapter 10 um, is called of effectual calling, um, chapter 11 of justification, chapter 12 of adoption, chapter 13 of sanctification, chapter 14 of saving faith, chapter 15 of repentance unto life, chapter 16 of good works, chapter 17 of the perseverance of the saints. Um, so essentially what the confession is going to be doing over the next six or seven chapters is walking through different aspects of our salvation in Christ and um, how those things fit together, looking at it from different angles in that way, so to speak. And um, some of you, if you know um, uh, the theological language, um, you'll notice that a, an important word is missing in those chapter titles, and that is regeneration. Um, regeneration has, has come to be a, a more um, common term today to describe um, what it means for God to make us alive in Christ and so that his um, spirit can enliven us um, um, to have faith, to receive all these gifts of our um, salvation like justification, adoption, uh, sanctification, etc. Um, but for the divines at this time, effectual calling is essentially the term they're using to describe what we would call today regeneration. So just want to point that out to you that um, a more modern way of titling this chapter might be of regeneration, um, God making us alive unto himself. Um, so let me read this um, first paragraph um, from this chapter, and then we'll um, talk about it a bit. Um, All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, so the elect, in other words, um, all of the elect, and those only, he is pleased, God is pleased, and his pleasure, and his free will, and his desire, in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call, or to regenerate, uh, by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death, in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And so, uh, just a few things to note there. Um, um, God 
the timing of our effectual calling being affected or our regeneration um, is up to God, and it happens at different times um, for different people in their lives. Um, it's something that God does in his pleasure, and he does it because he must do it. Otherwise, we would be without hope, um, as we've talked about at length, um, the doctrine of, um, of original sin, the doctrine of the corruption of mankind through the inheritance of sin, that sin nature um, um, is, and, and our own guilt because of our sin, uh, means that we are dead in ourselves and we need to be made alive by God um, before he can um, do his work in us. Um, so, so he um, calls us, as the divine say, by his word, of spirit, word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which uh, we are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He does this for every one of his elect. Um, there's no way for the elect to receive salvation other than through uh, the regenerating work of God, um, his uh, gracious action. So how does this happen? Um, by enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh. Of course, there's reference there to the prophets, to Jeremiah and Ezekiel use this kind of language to describe what God does. Um, actually, that language goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, um, where, where, Ju where Moses um, calls the people to not have hard hearts, but softened hearts, hearts of flesh. Renewing their wills. Uh, we talked last week about um, free will and how um, our will is, in a sense, has natural liberty. We choose what we want. Um, but aside from God renewing our will and making us alive to him, um, we will never desire um, him. And by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely. This obviously is connected to the previous chapter we looked at last week, chapter 9, um, that we come to Christ um, ultimately because um, God has changed our wills and given us a desire um, for Jesus. So we come freely, being made willing by his grace, by the grace of God. Um, God um, sets us free um, and even changes our, who we are. Um, he does a heart transplant, so to speak, um, in order to renew our wills um, so that we uh, freely desire um, Christ. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson um, summarizes um, these teachings here. He says, effectual calling or regeneration is seen as a sovereign activity of God necessitated by the state of sin and death in which we are by nature. Um, so we are by nature dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God makes us alive. It is sovereignly administered, right? God is the one who determines um, um, that we are made alive to him. It's not us. Sovereignly administered by God through Jesus Christ. The emphasis in this paragraph is on the effectual fulfillment of the predestinating purposes of God. We've talked about God's eternal decree. We've talked about um, the elect. How do the elect come to salvation? Um, this is the first and necessary step. Um, God effectually calling them or regenerating them. Um, by his Holy Spirit. This effectual calling, Ferguson goes on to say, involves four things for the divines. First, the enlightening of the mind, which brings understanding of the things of God. Secondly, the creation of the heart of flesh. 
That is a new disposition toward God. Third, the renewal of the will. Fourth, the actual conscious drawing to Jesus Christ, right? This is when our consciousness becomes engaged. Um, Notice that the confession qualifies all this description of the mighty work of God by emphasizing, but without explaining, right? We don't have a uh, follow the dots answer to how this works exactly, that this mighty work of God does not override the natural liberty of man, right? That's what we talked about last week in the first paragraph of chapter 9, that the natural liberty of man when it comes to his will. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And so we willingly um, come to God um, even as he draws us to himself. The last statement, that is the statement about um, us um, uh, being drawn to Christ, um, indicates that the previous three statements should not be read in a chronological sequence, Ferguson says, but three aspects of a synchronized reality. Those three statements being the enlightening of the mind, the gift of the heart, of flesh, and the renewal of the will. So that there is not in regeneration a forcing of the will which bypasses the mind and basic disposition, but rather in the engagement of God with man simultaneously in a synchronized fashion, the mind is enlightened, the heart is softened, the will is renewed. Um, So what he's saying is that these are not necessarily chronological steps, but rather what we might describe as logical steps in terms of the way that God works his salvation. And he concludes by summarizing what the divines are saying. We do not come to Christ against our wills. Rather, our will is changed. God um, and makes us alive so that we have Christ because we want Christ. Any questions or thoughts about that before we move on to other parts of this chapter? Yes, ma'am. Well, I think you could ask that question about lots of things about theology. <laughs> certainly, uh, certainly, I would say to that question, Trudy, I don't think, like, you, you mean specifically this enlightening their minds, taking away their heart of stone, those, those kinds of statements, renewing their wills. Um, I mean, I think what they're trying to do here is, is um, what's the word, summarize um, and systematize the way that the scripture speaks about salvation. Does that make sense? They're trying to look at the whole of scripture and considering both the Old and New Testament and thinking about what does it look like when God um, uh, does this thing, when he effectually calls someone or when he regenerates someone. And they're trying to say, well, over here it talks about the renewing of the mind. Over here it talks about the heart of flesh being given for the heart of stone. Over here it talks about the will being renewed. So it's trying to bring all of that together in a way that um, summarizes um, the way that Scripture speaks. I think it's fair to say that Scripture nowhere lays out these three steps in sequence the way the confession does. But this is what the confession is continually doing. It's seeking to summarize and systematize the various ways that the Scripture does talk about God and his work. In some ways, that's the task of systematic theology. Um, right? Um, um, we are trying to read the Bible as a whole, you know, taking into account all of its different genres and parts and how they relate to each other and say these are the ways that the Bible um, 
um, speaks about God and about man. And it's important to say that the Bible is not a systematic theology, right? The Bible doesn't come down to us in that way. And yet I do think it's an important task um, for men and women, um, men meaning humankind, to, um, to really seek to engage with the Bible in such a way that we understand its different parts and how they relate to each other and and um, and that that's really what the project of the confession of faith is is kind of a systematic explanation of what the scriptures teach and so this this is just a little subset of that overall project right and certainly I mean there are things that they don't talk about that they could have right um, they it's impossible to write a systematic theology that is comprehensive <laughs> in its summary of what God does and how he is um, so you have to you have to stop somewhere um, and they could have you know they could have left out these steps and it wouldn't have damaged their overall project or anything um, but here they made that decision to try to and I think what they're trying to do is really say well scripture does talk about this in different ways in different places and let's try to bring those things together in a in a summary form does that help And one, one way to really see that is the scripture references that are underneath there. Um, you know, just to take, you could take this handout home and, and spend some time and look up each scripture reference and try to ponder on, well, why is this used to support this aspect of this doctrine, right? What, what, and they, they spent several years doing that. Um, you know, first they had submitted the confession and the catechisms without proof texts, without those scriptures, and the parliament said, no, we want you to do more work. You can't go home yet. You need to add scripture to support all of these doctrines. So the, the Westminster Assembly went back and spent several years um, doing that, trying to, to locate all each of their doctrines, um, in, you know, and doing it by vote, right, doing it by committee and um, to say, and, you know, they had debates over, well, does this, you know, somebody wanted to use John 8 for this aspect. So I no, no, we can't use that. You have to use, you know what I mean? So there was, there was a big process in terms of how even these scripture references came about. Um, so that's, that's a great way to engage with the confession or the catechisms is to look up the proof texts and think about how they relate to each other. Um, yeah, Jeremy and then James. Be James. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's right. It gives us kind of language to talk about those aspects of salvation, which in some ways are mysterious and hard to define exactly in terms of what that feels like for a human person. But it gives us language to, to try to put words on it um, and think about those different things that God is doing. And we can be confident that God has done these things for us um, if we're in Christ, that he has renewed our mind, that he has given us a heart of flesh, that he has um, renewed our wills, all of those things. Yeah, that's right. That he's drawn us to Jesus. I mean, es- essentially what this, I mean, this doctrine should give us comfort um, for those um, as we as we proclaim the gospel, and certainly we, re- we proclaim the gospel to all, um, and yet we know that God, um, if he has elected someone, he will um, bring about their salvation. He will bring about um, the renewal um, of their mind and their heart and their will. He will draw them to Christ. All of these things uh, will happen under his sovereign hand. And the Lord will do it. He will not um, fail to accomplish that which he has purposed. And I think there should be great comfort in that for us as believers and also as we pray for um, those um, whom we love. Um, uh, we do so committing them to God ultimately, um, even as we um, proclaim the gospel in word and deed. Um, uh, certainly none of this removes the, the necessity of evangelism, the, the call to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And, but we, we do so with the confidence that those whom God has elected, he will call to himself, and he will do so efficaciously and fully and, and um, all the way to the end. All right, let me um, keep going, and we'll, we'll come back if we need to. Um, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. This is the second paragraph. Um, so this effectual call is located entirely um, 100% um, of in God's free and special grace. Um, that's, the, uh, that's the only cause, uh, not from anything at all foreseen in man. Um, there, there was some um, discussion at this time. Um, Arminias, Arminian, Arminianism um, argued um, that, that perhaps God, when he elected uh, those whom he elected, did so because he saw the future and he knew that if he um, uh, moved towards them, they would have faith. Um, And it's because um, he anticipated their faith that he elected them. Um, And and that's not what we believe. We believe that God has done this um, fully and entirely by his own grace, not because he anticipated um, that we would, that there was something different about me than about someone who is not a believer. Um, Rather, God has done this only in his own free and special grace. The effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened, quickened is a sort of um, archaic way of saying made alive, right? Regenerated, made alive, quickened, and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Um, He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Um, again, what the divines are emphasizing here is simply that um, that until we are made alive to God, we are entirely passive in relationship to him. It's, it's, it's wholly his work and his desire um, which causes these things to take place. Does that make sense? Okay. I want to give us a little time to talk about this next um, paragraph because I think it's important. 
elect infants, let me, let me just say, so what the divines are about to try to do here is to explain, um, so they've, they've described, um, you know, what does it look like, all of these things take place um, in terms of regeneration. And normally, of course, in the normal course of things, regeneration will express itself in an articulated faith, right? Um, in a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in a life of obedience to him, um, in um, works that show that faith is genuine. Um, all of these things, uh, you know, sanctification, all of those things will take place in the life of an elect person, typically. But they know that there are situations where people aren't able to express faith. Um, they aren't able to um, have this kind of experience, particularly of a verbal, articulated faith. Um, and um, in responding to the word in that way, particularly. Um, and, and the two categories especially that they're going to consider in this third paragraph are those uh, persons who die uh, before they are capable of expressing faith and also those persons who um, are damaged um, in some way um, by, um, by birth or by an accident or something that happens to them um, where they are unable verbally to articulate faith um, in their lives. You know, someone who is mentally handicapped, essentially, is what they're talking about um, here. Um, so, so they're saying, now we're not going to cordon off those categories of people who die in infancy or die in the womb um, or die before they're you know, old enough to verbally articulate faith, and we're not going to cut off people who are never have that capacity because of the fall, because of... Um, sin's corruption of, of the human experience. Um, but how are these elect, how are these persons, if they're elect, how do they come to God? Um, so they say, they get into this, elect, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So what they're saying here, and it, it's important to say, they, they, don't, they don't say infants dying in infancy are regenerated, right? They say elect infants, so those infants that belong to God, that are chosen by him. Um, how are they saved? What they want to say is that these infants are not saved um, because, you know, they never sinned. Um, you know, let's say you lose a child in the womb. Um, that child never sinned in any, you know, actual way. Um, but we believe, because of our doctrine of original sin, that they are guilty. The sin of Adam is imputed to them. Um, they are guilty from the time of conception. Um, and so what they're saying is that it's not just because, you know, children are just fundamentally innocent. Um, and therefore, God, you know, would never send a child um, under judgment, put a child under his judgment. No, they're saying elect infants are regenerated. They're made alive by God. They're saved by Christ through the Spirit. And how does this work? They basically say, they basically shrug their shoulders and they're like, I don't know, right? The Spirit does this um, and he works when and where and how he pleaseth, right? Um, just as our Lord says to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it goes, right? And who knows um, what it's doing? Um, this is what the Spirit does. It's like that. 
Um, and then they go on and say, so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. And here they're speaking, I think, primarily of people who have um, some kind of um, damaged mind, uh, mind or um, you know, s- in some way they're unable um, physically, mentally um, to respond um, to the word. And th- the, the point here is that, that these um, people fit in these categories who are elect are saved um, because God has made them alive to himself in a mysterious way. On your back page, Ferguson explains this. He says, the spirit may work apart from the word where and how he pleases. Um, you might think a reformed person would never say that, right? Um, but we, we have to say this. We have to say that, um, that, yes, typically it is through the word, through the preaching of the word especially, um, that God um, calls sinners to himself and um, they respond in faith and all of these kinds of things. And yet that is not always the way in which God works. The spirit um, works um, where and how and when he pleases. And sometimes he pleases to work apart uh, from the preached word. By saying elect infants, the divines are not answering the question whether all infants are elect. And I would just say they're simply not answering it, right? This is a debated point within Christian theology, do all children who die in the womb um, go to heaven, essentially, is the question. And I think that's a fascinating question, um, and there certainly is no proof text that we could go to that just sort of definitively says one way or the other. Um, But the divines are not trying to answer that question one way or the other. They're leaving it open. What they are saying is that we know that some infants who die are elect, and, and this is how they are saved. Um, They are simply saying, and they are making this statement, that election is not limited only to the adult state. God's election extends also to infants or to uh, children before birth. But how are they to be saved if they cannot hear the word? They are to be saved by the secret work, the hidden work, the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do think um, that the divines um, did not choose to elaborate on this in terms of how um, the children or the parents of, belie- of Christian parents should view the loss of their children. Um, how should we view loss of children in the womb? Um, how should we view um, children who die at a very young age after birth um, or the first years of their life? Um, they don't answer that question specifically, but I wanted to, I want to get into it a little bit today because I think it's important. Um, they do answer in the sense that any who are saved are saved by the work of the Spirit, but they don't really address the question of how um, we think specifically about um, those infants in terms of their election. Um, However, G.I. Williamson, who was a a Presbyterian theologian, 20th century OPC guy, um, in his commentary in the Confession, he says, believers, and rightly so, I think, he says, believers have special warrant to hope that their infants who die in infancy are elect, that they experience um, this regeneration and salvation by God in Christ. And then he lists several verses there. Um, Luke 18 is um, where Jesus, um, the disciples, um, try to prevent children from being brought to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, let them come to such belongs the kingdom. Um, Acts 2, um, 38 to 39 is Peter's um, sermon at Pentecost where he says um, be baptized uh, for the forgiveness of sins this is you know the conclusion of his sermon uh, for the promises for you and for your children 
Um, and so the, the children are included in that promise that, Paul, that Peter gives on the day of Pentecost regarding the forgiveness of sin. Um, Ezekiel 16 is an interesting chapter here. The Lord, um, through Ezekiel, is condemning the people of Israel because they have offered their children in a horrible way um, to um, false idols. They've actually burned them up um, in sacrifice. And the Lord is saying, you may not do this because those children are mine. Um, you've taken what is mine and given it to, um, to idols, um, false idols. And so he's, he's putting a special claim on the children of the people of God, saying that they belong to himself. Um, but this scripture text I've highlighted, I think, is really important as we try to think about um, why should we have confidence about our children who die in the womb or die in the early days of their life? In 2 Samuel 12, and this is, it's kind of fascinating, this comes out of this text, um, one of the worst sins in Israel's history in terms of um, its effect on the people. Um, uh, 2 Samuel 11, of course, tells the story of David and Bathsheba, David's actions with her, um, his misuse of his power. Um, taking her into his bed and then killing her husband um, so that he could take her as his wife um, after she becomes pregnant. Um, and of course, Nathan comes, he, 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 he confronts David in that sin, and he says, David, because of your sin, this child is going to die that you um, um, conceived with Bathsheba in your sin. And um, how does David respond to that? Remember, does anybody remember the story? What, is, what does David do in response to this? Does he just shrug his shoulders and say, okay, well, God has said it, so that's not what he does, right? What does he do? He prays and he fasts, right? Um, and he goes and into the tabernacle and does these things, and, and he um, begs God for mercy. He says, you know, Lord, please relent. Don't take the life of this baby. Um, this is after the child is born. Um, and uh, you know, the child is born, he becomes sick, and David quarrels with God, essentially, and, 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 and asks him to, to, to not um, um, to relent. And then um, he's praying, and the, the, his servants come to him, and they say, well, the child has died. And um, David gets up, and he, he um, washes his face, and he um, eats food, and he stops fasting and praying in this, um, you know, um, concentrated way. And his servants say to him, well, what are you doing? I mean, when the child was alive, you did all these things. Um, you, you know, you, your face was, was um, down and you fasted and, um, and now you're eating, right? You're not doing the kinds of things that associate with uh, mourning and, and all of that. And David says, um, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether Yahweh will be gracious to me, that the child will live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? He says, I, you know, God's judgment is final in this case. He's, he's dead. And then he says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me, um, which is a Remarkable thing um, for David to say. Uh, what, is, what is David saying there? What's his implication of his words? What's going to happen to David one day? He's going to die just like his child did. And then what's going to happen? He's going to go to his child, right? Which means that he believes firmly, confidently, um, that his child has gone to be with the Lord um, and that he can know 
um, that when death comes for him, as it's come for his child, death comes to us all, right, whether it's in the womb, whether it's in the first days of our life, whether it's when we're 95 years old. Um, um, and those um, who are in Christ cannot return to us, but we um, shall go to them. And that's, I think, a real, that's a verse that I've used a number of times in pastoral care for folks who have miscarried, um, who have lost children in the womb or, or in the early days of their life. Um, the first funeral that I ever preached as a pastor um, was this, this horrible situation, um, a little girl who died after living two days. She was born premature in our church. And just so excruciating, you know, first child of a couple that I had married and just a year previous to that. Um, um, we preach that, when I preach that funeral sermon, right, based on this text and other parts of the scriptures, I preached, I didn't say, well, who knows, right? Who knows what happened to this baby? Um, we'll never know, you know, let's hope for the best or something. I said, this child has gone on, right, to be with the Lord. And, um, and we can be confident um, in her salvation. Her name was Esther. Um, so I, I just want to encourage us in that, that I think that there is good scriptural warrant um, to be confident um, for believers that your children um, who die um, are with the Lord and that um, they will not return to you, but you one day will go to them. And I believe I say that on the authority of God's word. Um, the canons of Dort, um, uh, with Dort was a, a conference that took place in the Netherlands um, earlier in the 17th century before the Westminster Assembly. Um, they made a, a, a very um, strong statement about um, how the parents of believers or parents of children who die, uh, believers, should think about their children. Um, so that's this here on your, on your page. And I, I would commend this to you. This is a, an international you know, council um, of the Reformed Church in the early 17th century, and they said this 400 years ago. Since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, right? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. Not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included, godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. I think that is very well put, and that's exactly the way that I would encourage um, any of us who have lost children um, to not doubt, do not doubt, um, the election and salvation um, of those whom God has called to himself. Um, because of, um, not again because children are, you know, um, just innocent, and, but because your children are holy. Um, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, they are in the covenant um, um, by virtue of their uh, birth, by virtue of their conception even. Um, they are in the covenant, um, and so they are holy. They belong to God. They are his children. Um, and when he calls them to himself, and that's wonderful language um, that they use here, that, that God does sometimes call unborn children or young children out of this life, um, to himself. And one of the things I think that is a consolation there, it's been a consolation for me as I think about these things, um, is that our children who die in this way um, are being spared the kind of suffering that every person who lives a full life in this world knows. Um, 
And in some ways, that's a wonderful gift. I know it's difficult for those of us who lose children, and um, Amy and I have lost a baby um, in the womb. Um, so, I'm, you know, this is a personal thing. But it is, there is a kind of solace in knowing that the suffering that I know, um, the difficulty, the pain of life in this world, um, our children who die in this way um, don't experience that. They just go and are safe with Jesus. And that's all I want at this point as a 43-year-old man is to one day be safe with Jesus, right? Um, and so our children who, who experience this, um, there, there is a sense in which it is God's mercy um, and his love um, which compels this. I know that's hard maybe to wrap our minds around, but it is true, I think, um, because God is merciful and loving. And so everything he does is that. Um, so I just want to put that before you to think about. I know this is a sensitive topic, but I want to just encourage us in these things. Um, I'll just read this last um, paragraph, and then we'll sing together. Um, paragraph four, others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet they truly never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men, not professing the Christian religion, be saved in any other way whatsoever, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess, and to assert and maintain that they may be saved, that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. Essentially, what the divines here are saying is that um, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and none come to the Father but through him. Essentially, that's what they're saying. Um, there is no salvation for anyone outside of um, the work of Christ um, and his uh, being united to him. And, um, and that's true. And we can talk about that too, but we don't have time to today. Let me pray for us. Father, we um, give you thanks for your word. I thank you for even this story about David and the loss of his child and um, the hope that he had uh, for his child's salvation, um, the hope that he had that his child was with you. Um, and Father, I pray that you would grant those of us, especially who have lost children um, in the womb or um, in their early years, um, to be comforted, um, to have the same kind of hope, to not doubt um, that you um, have elected and saved our children. And um, and to give you thanks that you've done this um, by regenerating them and um, saving them, by uniting them to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by the, the hidden and mysterious work of your Spirit. Um, give us hope and faith, Father, in these things. Um, grant us your mercy in Christ's name. Amen.